This is the Diaspora Dialogues podcast series. My name is Helen Walsh, and I'm the president of DD. We have many programs that we produce throughout the year, including a number of public talks, onstage author interviews, and panel conversations. We record these in order to share them with listeners right across the country and globally as well. In this next episode, which we recorded in Ottawa, poet and educator Jackie Lawrence sat down with Toshi Anabuchi. Toshi is a star on the Red hot YA speculative fiction category in the U.S., which is the fastest selling segment of the fiction market. Any inspiring writer will be amazed by this podcast, as I was sitting in the audience for it. Toshi wrote several books before he got anything accepted. He queried 150 agents in the U.S. before he got his agent. He is the very definition of perseverance in the publishing industry. And his success and his lessons for how he did it will inspire everybody who wants to publish a book. His works of fiction has appeared in Asimov's, um, Obisian, and Ominia, and is forthcoming from Tor.com, HarperCollins, and Razo Bill. His nonfiction has appeared in Nowhere Magazine, the Oxford University Press blog, Tor.com, and the Harvard Journal of African American Policy, Public Policy, among other places. His Nemo Award nominated debut young adult um, novel, Beast Made of Night, was published by Razabil in October 2017, and its sequel, Crowd of Thunder, was released in October 2018. Tochi holds a BA from Yale, an MFA in screenwriting from Tisch, a master's degree in global economic law from Etude Politique, and a JD from Columbia Law School. Welcome. When do you sleep? (laughs) (laughs) On the plane. plane. (laughs) You know, in in Jamaica, we have a thing that you must have at least three jobs. I think you've outdone us. (laughs) That may be from some of our Nigerian ancestors. I don't know. (laughs) Well, welcome. Is this your first time to Canada, Ottawa? Uh, First time to Ottawa. First time to Canada in a very long time. Okay. Um, Like, I imagine many Americans. I've been to Montreal, but I do not imagine that Montreal is representative uh, of the entirety of the the, the country. No, no, no. no. That's good. You don't make that general distinction. (laughs) There's more more to Canada than Crescent Street, apparently. Right. Well, welcome back to Canada and welcome to Ottawa. Thank you for having me. So, um, I want to, so yeah, in addition to your multiple jobs, <laughs> I wanted to start by asking you, when did you fall in love with words? Oh, my goodness. So, actually, you can blame my being a writer on, paradoxically enough, my mom. I loved to draw growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom, we had, she had this second job. Uh, basically as a... Oh, so just where you got the job. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, you know, it's genetic, (laughs) I'm pretty sure. Got it. Um, She had this second job as a janitor, and it would turn into this, like, family thing where she would take all us kids to these office buildings scattered throughout Connecticut, where we lived, and we would clean offices. So there was, you know, a, a legal office in, I think, Glastonbury, you know, another, like, temp agency in Glastonbury. There was an engineering shingle in Hartford. There was a water treatment facility in Plainsville. We would go to all these places and basically like clean, vacuum the floors, take Mm -hmm. out the trash, scrub the toilets, all of that. 
And because they were office buildings, mom was always coming across office supplies that these people were getting ready to throw away. Most notably, these three ring binders that were just filled with plain sheets of paper. And so we would bring these home, and they, they would have like 500 sheets of paper in them. And I would fill them up probably within about a week and a half with just sketches and drawings. And mm-hmm. I wanted to be a comic book artist. Okay. And one day, I might have been, it was sometime in grade school, I might have been in third or fourth grade. Mom approached me, and she said, you have all these characters. Why not write stories for them? And at the time, I was just like, Mom, can I live? <laughs> I, 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 I just want to draw. I like, can, can just leave me with that. Mm-hmm. But as the oldest son of Nigerian parents, I am loath to disobey my mom. Mm-hmm. So, so I began writing. And they started out as sort of one paragraph summaries of their adventures. And then mm-hmm. one paragraph became two became three, and then they started meeting each other, Mm -hmm. which was an unforeseen development. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, the moment where the the idea of writing being fun kind of crystallized. And then, fast forward to seventh grade, where I took my very first creative writing class. It was the very first time that telling stories was part of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And in Nigerian households, grades are currency. Like, you know how, you know, you'll go on to Google and look up somebody's net worth? Mm -hmm. Like, that was basically, that's what your grades were, was your net Mm -hmm. worth Mm -hmm. um, in the home. And there is a very high premium for for A's. Mm -hmm. And so I discovered very quickly in this creative writing (laughs) class that not only did I enjoy telling stories, but I could get good grades for it. Oh, Oh my goodness. The conspiracy has started. Yeah. (laughs) So you get this, it was wonderful. You get this sort of virtuous cycle going Mm -hmm. where, you know, I had fun telling these stories and I could come home and show mom that I got this A, you know, just very, very, very easily. Um, And that just, you know, it it sort of became this Mobius strip of Mm -hmm. me falling in love with with writing, and I think it just sort of blossomed from there. Okay. Now, in in terms of the spaces you were helping your mom clean, was one of them a law office? Is that, did you become the lawyer and then somebody else became the engineer? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, it it does seem as though there's a bit of prophecy in there. Yeah. Just checking. Well, so what's, what's funny about that, and I was thinking about it the other day, actually, in the sort of lawyer's office, they, in the lobby, had these like magazines. And there would be magazines that clients would come in. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize this at the time, because I was a kid. I didn't know that there were clients and lawyers. I just knew that there were like really thick, ugly books on the mm-hmm. shelves in people's offices, and then really like fun, glossy magazines you know, on, the, you know, on the tables in the lobby. But there was one, they, they had uh, travel and leisure. They had issues of travel and leisure on the tables in the lobby. And when I was done taking out the trash, because I would, I was really good at it and could finish before all my siblings mm-hmm. finished with their stuff, I would go to the lobby and I would read issues of travel and leisure as ways of researching uh, all the places where I would set the spy novels uh, I was writing there you go. <laughs> when I was younger. There you go. So yeah, so nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. And I love that you said that because I think sometimes we don't pay attention to our environment enough or we don't think about what the environment is giving us access to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's some folks who would look at, oh, you're cleaning office buildings. That must be really bad, as opposed to the adventure of it in a way. Yeah, well, like, I, I got access to these, you know, 
these wonderful magazines that uh, we didn't have travel and leisure at home. Mm -hmm. like, we, we didn't have subscriptions to, to publications like that. And also I think too, being surrounded, I don't know what it was about maybe being surrounded by all those law books, it just made certain things seem attainable. Mm -hmm. Even though from the, you know, from the posture of like cleaning these buildings, you don't necessarily see yourself as occupying these offices. It wasn't necessarily anything like that, but it was like, okay, I know, I have an idea now, some of what lawyers do. Now, what you did, you, did you do the MFA first or did you do the law degree first? The, the, the MFA, MFA first. first, yes. Okay, so, <laughs> <laughs> because the reason I asked you the question about words, because one of the things I got from your, your reading your work, The Beast Made of Night, you play with words a lot. Yeah. And I'm like, this brother's <laughs> dancing with words here. <laughs> so, tell us a little bit about Beast Made of Night and in particular, I want you to talk about this, this, the main city that mm -hmm. this is taking place, because I want to probe that one a little bit. Certainly. <laughs> so, so Beast Made of Night is the story of a young boy named Taj who has the power to consume other people's sins. And uh, when you consume a sin, you also consume the guilt associated with the sinful act. So you do this enough times, you go mad and you die. And the way that it works is a mage will call forth a sin from somebody, and it'll take the form of this monstrous beast that Taj has to slay and then physically eat. And uh, one day he gets called to do this for a member of the royal family and in the process uncovers a plot to destroy the city. And this story is set in a city uh, named Kos and it's very much based on Lagos in Nigeria where my mother grew up. And it's funny too because the way that she talks about Lagos, it's like, <laughs> Imagine the craziness, the wildness, the, the, the violence in all your ideas of, say, like New York City, right? And then turn that volume knob on 10, mm -hmm. right? It's everybody's got to hustle. Like, even the mosquitoes will hold you up at gunpoint <laughs> in Legos. Like, the toddlers are walking around just slapping people for no reason. Like, it's wild, right? Um, but the way mom talks about Legos, she has the biggest smile on her face. Like, that's home for her. Mm. And I wanted to be able to capture some of that. I wanted to be able to write about people who felt this love for this city that could very easily eat you alive. That's why, see, I love, you see, I didn't even think of the part about Lagos, but that was good. Because <laughs> then I started, you know, before I went to sleep one night, I said, hmm, K-O-S, hmm, <laughs> chaos. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this brother is dancing with words here. Was that intentional, too, like, in terms of how that has the cost and the chaos of that, of the, as you just described it? Sort of. So, you know, yes and no. And I think, I forget how exactly he put it, but Ralph Ellison had this very fascinating statement about how, you know, when we ascribe intentionality to writers or when writers address the issue of intentionality, you know, it's not necessarily that there's stuff in their subconscious mm -hmm. that's going, there's stuff that they intend and then there's also stuff that they don't know that they're intending, and, right. but that they intend nonetheless. No. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, a reader will be like, whoa, this is a really like brilliant thing that you did. And rather than be like, oh, that was completely mm -hmm. unintentional, like there was probably a part of the writer's brain that that was actually putting that together mm -hmm. at the time. And so I think that latter category is where the 
uh, cause chaos thing. Comes yeah, into because play. as a, you know, the, the further I read through it, I said, oh my goodness, is was this some foreshadowing at the beginning, <laughs> um, based on the events that occurred? And I'm thinking definitely. I mean, but I also I love words. Mm-hmm, I got that. And so that it's it's funny when I got to law school, everybody, everybody could not stop saying how it was going to absolutely ruin my writing, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that was the universal thing. It's like, oh, Tochi, it's gonna, you know, it, you're gonna lose your ability to tell stories, it's gonna ruin your writing. <laughs> That's a hotbed for and stories. And I was like, <laughs> you thought, right? Like, my thing was, I'm going to take whatever sense of adventure I feel mm-hmm. with writing, and I'm gonna bring that Absolutely. to whatever brief, whatever paper, whatever I'm working on. Ah. So like there's one paper in particular that I wrote for this seminar on theories of constitutional interpretation, right? And you made that adventurous? Yo, the, <laughs> I, some of the sentences in that paper are some of the sentences of which I am most proud in wow. my entire wow. life. I want to read that. I snapped in that essay. <laughs> uh, but like that's what, like I just, so, with regards to writing, I love storytelling. Mm-hmm. I love world building. I, and I love a lot of the craft of it. Mm-hmm. So being able to move plot along in a way that mm-hmm. develops characters and have scenes in which conflicts can play out in very fascinating mm-hmm. ways. I love all of that. I also love getting into the rhythm of a paragraph. Mm-hmm. I love getting into like the way that you can string sentences together. Like, I, I listen to rap as like a nerd. I mm-hmm. listen to rap like I would analyze a poem, mm-hmm. you know? The, the different rhyme schemes that, di- that people can have, the way that they just, it's not just words on paper, it's how they sound, and not necessarily how they sound audibly, but like how, you, how fast, how slow you get mm-hmm. through that. I, I hear that because there were parts of your book when I read, I said, this needs to be read out loud. And I said, I can't wait for him to read. This needs to be read out loud. I won't request a particular passage, but but speaking of that kind of, the other thing I picked up in your writing was a sense of balance. You talk about the rhythm, but there was almost, and, and maybe the balance is kind of the striving for harmony, if you will, both within the characters as well as within the overall environment, if you will. So even from the get-go, there's the scene where the Akai, who are the sin eaters, are you know dancing and playing and there's a lot of laughter, but there's Taj who's at a distance and who is watching silently. So it's this constant juxtaposition of balance. Again, was that something that you mapped out or did the characters take you to that place? I think that's something that runs through my writing in general. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that sort of conflict that comes from having people that, I think David Milch put it one time, he's the, the guy who wrote, um, who created uh, NYPD Blue mm-hmm. and Deadwood. Um, having people who spin against the way the world turns, mm-hmm. which I thought was fascinating in terms of how to describe people in conflict with their environment, and not necessarily in a, a physical kinetic conflict mm-hmm. with their environment. You know, they may not necessarily be living in an explicit state of oppression, mm-hmm. but just like the scene you described mm-hmm. where, you know, there are these Aki that are dancing and then Taj is at a distance. He's mm-hmm. removed himself mm-hmm. from it. There's conflict, there's friction mm-hmm. there. And that's where the interesting stuff is. But that me. pulled me in right away. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ooh, it's gonna be good. Yeah, <laughs> but exactly. So also from a craft level, 
you know, you have, you, you throw something like that out mm -hmm. there, all of a sudden people are asking questions. Mm -hmm. Why is it this way? Right. Who is this person? Mm -hmm. Why is this person not with these other people? Mm -hmm. Why are they different? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and I think maybe the biggest piece now in terms of the balance, I mean, there are two major themes that I saw that wove through it. Number one was, as a sin eater, eating other people's sins. So this, you know, dance of eating the sins and then the emotions, the guilt, since you said earlier, that comes with that. But then it's also the conflict comes with now you have internalized those sins. Um, and then, of course, there's the juxtaposition of that. Well, not the juxtaposition, but there's the other element of it in terms of only people who can afford to have their sins be eaten get to do that. So it creates a really interesting power dynamics, right? So in that structure that you wove, <laughs> I mean, that's just woven throughout the whole book. What did you want the reader to get from that? I wanted the reader to think about power imbalances in society. Mm -hmm. So in constructing that world and those dynamics, I drew a lot from what I observed doing civil rights work with the New York Attorney General's office and then later working with the Legal Aid Society on Rikers Island. Mm -hmm. You know, every day I'm being confronted by these issues of crime and sin and guilt and punishment and mm -hmm. who gets punished for what. And you do not need to stretch your imagination to come up with an explanation or several for why, for instance, there is the racial and socioeconomic gap in the American prison population that there is today. You know, mm -hmm. you, you don't have to think too hard to come to a plausible explanation for why that is. Why it seems as though uh, certain crimes uh, merit a, a disproportionate amount of the, the punitive aspect of the American imagination than others. Mm -hmm. You know, you have financial crimes that could literally wipe out entire neighborhoods economically, right? They could literally shatter town. They can, like, there, there are towns now in America that literally don't exist that mm -hmm. did exist 10 years ago because somebody, you know, decided mm -hmm. to sell a credit default swap, you know, or to do some, you know, fancy dark magic at a bank or what have you. But at the same time, you know, you can sell, you can sell a dime bag, not even of like crack or whatever, right? And you will be, in, you will be thrown in a cage for a significant portion of your life. I wanted, I wanted readers to read my book and then maybe see that and, and ask themselves, why is it like that? Why, in terms of the, the way that society is set up, why are, are some people bearing more of the blame for that mm -hmm. than others? And then you went even further with that because then you have these different positions that have different weight. So you have, for example, Aliyah, who is the aspiring well, she wants to be an algebraist, but then mm -hmm. she was put in a different position because there's, of course, conflict in terms of how, is, how do you pronounce it, Magi or the... Mages? The, mages. Mm -hmm. How the mages saw her versus how the princess saw her, those kinds of things. But she said something very interesting, that she's been cloistered so long that she's forgotten that these particular structures exist. And so the, the question is, you know, this, the, as we're living in this kind of woke movement or this mm -hmm. woke era, how many times do we get present to the different ways that there are inequities, if you will. Absolutely, I, I think about that all the time. Just because, you know, you look at a space like Twitter, for instance, mm -hmm. where people have developed a vocabulary for talking about a lot of the issues with regards to, you know, incarceration, with regards to, um, you know, inequities in the educational system, with mm -hmm. regards to, you know, 
what have you, right? A particular oppression of um, you know women of color mm -hmm. in specific like there are there's a vocabulary for mm -hmm. all of that, right? At the same time, for a lot of the people on the street that are like running into that every single day, a lot of the cats in the barbershop, a lot of the people just like taking the bus to work, they don't get that vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Like they don't have access to that. But we're talking about stuff that's happening to them. them. And there's this there's this like gap where you know you have people in academia who are studying the prison population in America who have never been inside a prison. And that was something that I wanted to highlight mm -hmm. was, you know, how much good can we do? How much can we really know a thing mm -hmm. or know a phenomenon without actually having to like walk through it? Well, I mean, I mean but that also even is playing with a sense of what is knowing or what is mm -hmm. knowledge. Like is knowledge just in the books mm -hmm. or is knowledge in the lived experience or, and when do the two come together? Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. I love, I love living in the space where you have to fight through those questions. But I think also that's what um, black writers are bringing to the whole genre fantasy. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's this notion of bringing lived experience and then how do you kind of take those resilience tools and like magnify it to a whole nother level. That's why N.K. Jemison is the GOAT. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I heard it. I, you're the one who wrote, God, that's my Christmas on my Christmas list. <laughs> <laughs> No, she's amazing. Like, just yesterday, there were profiles of her in GQ and Vulture. Like, she is amazing. And the Broken Earth trilogy is a prime example of exactly that. Like, could that have been written to such an extent of brilliance by anyone from a, from a demographic other than black womanhood? Mm -hmm. You know? I, like, it's so specific to that experience. Well, you know, this is one of the things that we're starting to understand in the school system that there's a particular lived experience that if you don't understand it, that curriculum makes absolutely no sense. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's how do you make the curriculum relevant mm -hmm. and not to, not to quash the lived experience, but how to mine the lived experience yes. in such a way that it actually propels you to move forward. Yes, absolutely. From a choice, like that's, you get choice from that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really quite fascinating. I want to bring your attention to on page 80, Taj is describing his now juxtaposition of this in a very interesting way. When he talks about, I have a fear about the people who live in places like this and he's in the palace. And it's, a, it's not just about the royal family. I see it whenever the well-to-do scholars and lawyers and religious officers live. They build places like this with ceilings high overhead and walls very far apart to make a person feel small. They build places like this to make it seem like human beings don't live here. People don't live there. <laughs> things, things bigger than people do. Where, I mean, <laughs> are, you, are you digesting your own words? <laughs> well, like, that, I think that came from having gone to school with really rich white people mm -hmm. for the vast majority of my life. I went, to, I went to a private middle school that I got a scholarship to for seventh and eighth grade. And that was my first real exposure to, you know, kids that do ski club, mm -hmm. you know, up in mountains in Vermont. And kids who, like, live in homes that are, like, literally eight times as big as the building I grew up in, right? Then I went to a private high school, like this boarding school in Wallingford, Connecticut. And you know you get you get to live in the same building as people who use summer as a verb, you know, <laughs> like people. Who... <laughs> I summer. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. So you get exposed to that. And then I went to Yale. And then like later I wound up at Columbia Law. And it's, I remember there was a moment going to a very good friend's house because we were going to go on this like road trip after graduating high school, my best friend at the time. And uh, I went to his house for the first time. It was huge. And like, I'd been at this school with rich white people for four years. So I'd seen, I'd seen stuff, right? <laughs> I'd been around the block a few times. This dude's house was massive. <laughs> and it just got me thinking about the different ways in which people occupy space. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm accustomed to navigating a cramped kitchen, you know, <laughs> while like mom's making a massive meal. I'm, you know, accustomed to, you know, in this, in this like tiny game room, there being like three people crowded around a single Sega Genesis, mm -hmm. like on a TV that's not that big, right? That's what I'm accustomed to. Yo, this dude had, like he had, I think three or four brothers, they each had monogrammed like hand towels. <laughs> what, like to this day, <laughs> this stuff like blows, blows my mind. It goes beyond issues of necessity because sometimes when you occupy a space, you look at that space in terms of, okay, how can I use this to fulfill my basic needs? Mm -hmm. You know, like it keeps the, keeps the rain and the snow away. Like I have the space that I need to make food. I have the space that I need to, you know, engage in some leisure, whether it's just like meditation, whether it's just like watching TV or what have you. You know, I have space to sleep. You know, those don't all necessarily have to be different mm -hmm. physical spaces, but like, I have all those things. Yo, what is it like to have a whole extra space that nobody really lives in unless somebody comes to visit? Like, the idea of guest bedrooms <laughs> blew my mind when I first heard about it. Like, I was like, you have a whole room in your house. Guest that suite. No yeah, that like nobody uses. Guest bedroom, <laughs> guest bathroom, nobody uses it. Like, how many times that do you have people, like, sleep? Nobody uses that whole entire room. You have a TV in that room that nobody turns on. Like, that just, why, why would you do that, right? So when I started asking myself questions about the different ways in which people can occupy something like living space, that's where, like, that comes from. And then you get to, like, the really like massive stuff, the people that want to show off how wealthy they are, like that's when you get to some of the stuff where like it's not even about living, it's not even about like using this space for anything related to human need, like it's really about power. But then That's why you have gold, that's why our president has a gold toilet. <laughs> Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> but in, in, in Beats Made of Night, you also go further with this. And, you know, one of the things I just loved about it's just you kept unfolding different aspects of this. It's like, you know, I'm like, where's he going to go next with this? And one of the spaces you went with it was looking at the, even after the sin eaters have, have eaten the sin, there were then these baptisms that occur, where it's like, we're just going to wipe out the whole space. And so talk about space again in terms of, not that I have this big palace, but I just want to take control of everything because I need to wipe you out now. And Taj's response to that is like, it ain't going, it's on now. Because he himself was not comfortable in the palace because it's like, what do you do? You do nothing. <laughs> I'm used to working, I'm used to strategizing, I'm used to hustling, I'm used to, because my life is my survival, let's put it that way. But when it gets to that point of erasing 
and destroying. And the sin, the, the Akai, I think it's Omar, the young Akai, when he was getting his, his blade. And he speaks about he, the, the ceremony that takes place for him to get his blade. And he, I must master my blade like I master my life. Speak a little bit about what that mastering of life is from the Akai perspective. It's about sort of taking control when you don't have any, um, which seems like a, a really vague way to put it. But you know, if you're if you're a person of color in an industrialized society, you know exactly what that means, mm -hmm. right? You have, you know, from birth all these indications, all these signals being thrown at you about stuff that's out of your control, whether it's the fact of your, socio, your family's socioeconomic status, whether it's um, you know, opportunities, professional or personal, that are being denied to you, whether it's you know, the, the dad of the person you're dating not approving of you because mm -hmm. of the way that you look or the God that you worship or what have you. you know, you're constantly having these things thwarted, whether professional ambitions, personal ambitions, love, what have you, mastering your life is a way of trying to figure out how to take control. And that's where a lot of the, the joy of the, the Aki come from, like the dances that they do, all mm -hmm. of that, because that's one of the few instances where they're able to live in a way that's not determined by other people. Like if you can exist in a state of oppression and persist in experiencing joy, mm -hmm. like that's power. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's what I try to speak to in that. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, it was beautifully done. <laughs> now, one of the other things is uh, the sin eaters, the spots that show, the sin spots that show up based on, you know, whatever that sin is, whether it comes in as, a, as, as an image of a bear or a spider or whatever that level of sin <laughs> is, it has an animal replication of it. And then it, it comes like a tattoo on the body of the Akai. Now, for most of the Akai, or many of the Akai, those spots disappear, but for Taj, it does not. Why? Or do I have to read book two to find <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, I, so there's, um, there is a, a writer reason for it and a story reason for it. The story reason for it, I'm not going to reveal, mm. but the, um, the writer reason for it is that I wanted, to, I wanted to write about racism in a society where everybody's black. So, you know, I sort of paint myself into a wall, for lack of a better phrase, and this was a way of getting around that. And also, I just love tattoos, just in general. So I wanted to show what it was like, or what it can be like, for people to walk through their life and have the entirety of their lived experience determined by how they look. Because that's, that's racism. Mm -hmm. That's literally the, the ease or lack thereof with which you are able to walk through your life being determined entirely mm. by what somebody sees when they first see you. Um, and, and that's, what I, that's what I wanted Taj to, like, to express. And I, I love Taj? Taj. Taj, okay. <laughs> I love Taj because he gives you access to that inner conflict. So he tries to cover it up as much as he can. And then he meets Azora, who lets him know that you have a gift. And where I come from, we revere you. We celebrate that gift. But in this part, in this 
costs or chaos as I call it. <laughs> it is being denied again. So how do you shift in space? How do you migrate space to, to go to those places? Or how do you get to identify those places that you can go to celebrate self? Oh, man. So last month, I was in... It's actually in Lagos for mm. an arts and book festival. It was one of the most charmed like five days of my life, or like mm. five day spans of my entire life. Mm. Now, in the States, I'd existed in creative spaces populated by, you know, almost exclusively people of color before, whether it's, you know, we're working in film or TV or whether it's, you know, the young adult community or, or whether, you know, it's, it's in a particular like writing class or mm -hmm. whatever, right? or even just personally. I'd, done, I'd lived in those spaces before. But hanging over that, in America at least, there's always a threat of literal or figurative sort of mm -hmm. white violence, right? Mm -hmm. And this is any sort of black space, whether it's you know, a church, somebody mm -hmm. with a gun can walk in, right? Or if it's more figurative, if you're working on a TV show, like your showrunner, who more often than not is going to be white, mm -hmm could cancel the show or like, you mm -hmm. know, do whatever or fire you. You know, we just saw with um, Mike, the online publication, like they just let go a hundred people on their staff, all these reporters and whatnot, because their business model wasn't working, what have you. All that stuff, right? But when I was in Legos, I was surrounded by like the most beautiful, like filmmakers, novelists, poets, photographers, architects, directors, and we were all black. Like nobody, the festival organizer was black, everybody was black. Like we didn't have to worry about a white person like coming in and ruining it. Like <laughs> if it didn't work, it was because of, yeah, it, was, it would be because of us, because of black people. Everybody was black. And I, I didn't realize it until like after I came back, but when you don't have to exert or expend mental energy worrying about losing the space, the beautiful mm -hmm. sort of Edenic space that you're in, oh my goodness, you, like you can do so much. Mm -hmm. Like it was, that period of time is just in my memory suffused with this glow mm -hmm. because it was lived in the absence of that fear and that worry. And all of that made me think of like what I was thinking of when I wrote that scene where Arzu is describing her home mm -hmm. to Taj and, mm -hmm. and you know she's like, you know, this this thing that you're ashamed of mm -hmm. here, you know, back mm -hmm. home, like that's the wave. Mm -hmm. That's the <laughs> and that's your power, right? Yeah. That's your power. Yeah. Um, ooh, how are we doing for time? Oh gosh, we just keep talking. <laughs> I'm, I'm, really, I'm really long winded. Sorry. <laughs> you what? I'm very long winded. I apologize. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is good. Because the, there's also that migrant story in it as well, in terms of where a lot of the Akai, when they become um, sin eaters, they leave their family. They become somewhat removed from their families because it's seen as a not the best of things to happen, <laughs> right? So, but still, as they're being sin eaters, they're getting paid. And many of them send money back. The whole remittance journey mm -hmm. of, of many people who've moved from one country to the next or moved from rural to, to urban areas. Mm -hmm. Were you intentional in terms of bringing that particular lived experience into the conversation about this kind of um, not only separation from home, but also, and so therefore food becomes another thing to bring you back home, or the gatherings come another way to bring you back home. But this notion of 
even though I can't see them and I'm away from them, I can still take care of them. And so that becomes your driving force that you can then, you know, sin and sin and get paid. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. No, it's, you know, as Or eat sin and get paid. No, absolutely. I mean, in, you know, in immigrant households, you always know where the nearest Western Union is. Like, that's, that's how it goes, right? Mm -hmm. you, you send money back. And sometimes, especially if a family goes to a new country in pieces, so to speak, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's the father that goes first or whether it's like the oldest son that goes first, gets set up, you know, sending money back and whatnot to take care of other people and establish a base so that the next person can come, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like that whole thing, that was very much intentional in terms of trying to evoke the immigrant experience or the migrant experience in mm -hmm. that regard. Mm -hmm. So I want to just close by asking you, what, are there any particular Nigerian influences? Because I, I didn't have time to do the research, so I want you to tell me now. Are there any particular Nigerian influences in terms of symbolism that you wanted to to pay honor to your heritage in that way? Oh man, well, it's. I think one of the one of the things, and this isn't necessarily a certain a, a specific totem, whether physical or symbolic or what have you, but one thing that seems to be endemic to Nigerians, and this is just through personal observation is their skill at alchemy. As far as infrastructure goes, Nigeria is not the most advanced country. <laughs> you know, the, just, take a, just take a quick drive on any of the roads in Lagos and you'll see that there's quite a bit of work to be done. We don't have potholes, we have craters that demand sacrifices <laughs> of the vehicles on the road. There are a few um, countries like that. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think I've ever come across a people, and I mean just like per capita, that laugh or joke as like wonderfully vicious and as viciously wonderfully as Nigerians do. I've never seen people who laugh as much as Nigerians do. Um, no matter what country, whether they're in Nigeria or whether they're in America, like we always joking, always laughing, but like, the, you know, you think about it, Boko Haram is, is still going on. There's a conflict with the Fulani herdsmen mm -hmm. and all the clashes there. Like, bodies are piling up, mm -hmm. right? There's all these, there are all these horrible things that are happening. There's an election, actually, that's going to be happening in 2019, and there's, I know there's going to be all types of violence mm -hmm. and chaos surrounding that, but, like, we will always have jokes. Like, it's like when it. you have the funny Twitter accounts that are always getting those jokes off, like that's us. But I think it comes back to this thing you said earlier about having joy even in, in despite mm -hmm. of all of those things that are happening. So Taj is in all of this chaos. He's in, 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 in this dance with, you know, his own conflict about eating sins, et cetera. But there's no, and, and of course he falls in love with the person who thinks he's the purest but I won't spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit more. Just close this. Just close this part in terms of you make it very sensitive to being able to share all of these things that are happening and unpacking that. Was there an intention about the sensitivity factor in terms of as he's kind of going through this to be able to share that inner space? Yeah, it's. I mean, part of it is the the joy and struggle as a writer of writing from the perspective of a young adult. And so it, you know, it involved, at least for me, a little bit of time travel in writing Taj because it was a lot of that, a lot of what he's going through internally is stuff that I experienced at one point in my life. 
And so it entailed revisiting a lot of that in very autobiographical fashion. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's not disguised as much as it would be if I were writing, say, for instance, adult characters that were dealing with a lot of these mm -hmm. dynamics and what have you. I think that made it, you know, even though you know, there might have been a bit of, I don't know, like psychic injury involved in reopening certain wounds or what have you, or revisiting certain places, it did feel smoother. Mm -hmm. It felt easier. It felt like the pathway had already been paved for me to get to that place emotionally where I could be like, oh, so this is what it's like for somebody in Taj's socioeconomic mm -hmm. position to fall in love with a woman who is like unattainable to him mm -hmm. materially and who like kind of sort of a little bit views him as like this this curiosity mm -hmm. as opposed to this actual human being mm -hmm. capable of being loved we're gonna end it there yeah. <laughs> any question because <laughs> we could go on please do the honor of reading for us it would be my pleasure <laughs> i gotta close my eyes now <laughs> <laughs> I was originally, because we, we sold out all the copies of, of book one, yes, um, I was originally going to read a section of book two, but there are ever so slight, ever so slight spoilers at the beginning of book two. Yes, there are. So, so I am instead going to read a portion from book one. This is from the very beginning of chapter four. I know how this all goes. Every once in a while, when some Kaya feels like it, brigades of palace guards swarm through the forum and out into the Dahia, where families like mine live in shacks and mud-colored homes. Then, up on the hills surrounding the neighborhood, wreckers and hurlers are wheeled into place, pulled by servants hoping to work off their sins with manual labor. Meanwhile, the families in the slums cower in fear. Some won't know where to go or what to do, they're the recent arrivals. Maybe they can no longer afford a place in the forum. Maybe they're coming from outside of Kos. Maybe they're just unlucky. Meanwhile, the rest of the Dahia will begin packing up their lives and running away. The hurlers, those massive wooden contraptions, will fling their shots, and stone and brick will arc high into the air, then crash into the houses below. Frightened children will scurry, crying for help, and some of them will run straight into the arms of palace guards and the Aga sentries lying in wait to round up more potential Aki. I know how this all goes because that's how they got me. Ooh, yes, you've got <laughs> to read it. <laughs> I'm Tochi Anabuchi, lawyer, writer, um, janitor. <laughs> <laughs> I do it all. I do it all. <laughs> but what great storylines. I still want to read that constitutional piece. So thank you so much for your time. And well, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this program. Please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast provider. If you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or invites to our events, please join our DD newsletter by emailing us at info at diasporadialogues.com with subscribe in the subject line. Thanks so much for listening.